Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. Hey guys, this is your People of Purpose podcast host, Tanner Badgley. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you find value in receiving a very short email every other weekend that personalizes your path of purpose? The POP newsletter, because people of purpose, is a very short email where I share with you the most interesting things I've recently discovered, have been thinking about, or implementing into my life each week to more personally and purposefully pursue my purpose. It will include a short update on how my podcast is helping me grow into my purpose, a quote that's been on my mind from a purposeful resource such as a podcast, book, video, or mentor, as well as a nugget of advice from my experience on how to better align and optimize your life for your purpose. And finally, I'll try to share inspiration with you on how one of our listeners is benefiting from people of purpose. So please take a small step of action right now by sending a quick email to peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com. You don't even need to write a message. Just include in the subject header, People of Purpose Newsletter, and you'll receive the very next one. Here's to becoming People of Purpose. Ask the right questions and just keep asking them. Template, story, analogy about the human condition. If we can show that having a life of meaning and being devoted to a purpose. That to me is a cool focus because it doesn't matter whether that focus is, we each can build something that's valuable in our own lives. Having opportunities to see these like beautiful strivers. The trick isn't learning to love humanity. The trick is learning to love those members of it who happen to be close at hand. I think it's a big deal if someone can really be as close to the surface with who, with what their essence is around another person. Michael Steger is a professor of psychology and founding director of the Center for Meaning and Purpose at Colorado State University. For more than 15 years, he has researched how people flourish by living a meaningful life. Michael has also published more than 100 scholarly journey articles and book chapters, as well as three books. Michael was recently named as an extraordinary professor by Northwest University in South Africa. He received his BA in psychology from Macalester College, where I went to school, and his PhD in counseling psychology and personality psychology from the University of Minnesota in 2005. His graduate work on developing a measure of meaning in life earned him the best dissertation award from the International Society for Quality of Life Studies. He has continued to research the foundations and benefits of living a meaningful life. In addition, Michael has published research on factors related to achieving well-being, how people adjust to traumatic life events, and social influences on depression. He is the co-editor of Designing Positive Psychology from Oxford University Press and Purpose and Meaning in the Workplace from American Psychological Association Press. His research also investigates what makes work meaningful and how meaningful work enriches employees and organizations. He currently serves as the associate editor of the Journal of Personality and serves on the editorial boards of several other journals. Just had a really great interview with Michael Steger. I really appreciate how 
Michael has like made this lifestyle that's very authentic to himself and he's built these like on-ramps for people to find their purpose from the work that he's done. He's really formed, charted his own path and I think that's really admirable. And like I said, it's very authentic to who he is. I think you'll discover that in this interview that uh, Michael has this very captivating aspect to the words he chooses, the knowledge he transmits, the humility he kind of exudes. Because this topic is such a hard one to really pin down, but the work Michael's doing, I think, is, is really making a dent in the world. And it's really an honor and a pleasure that we got to have this sort of conversation. Um, I really love his idea about how harmony is an essential component of purpose and how um, it's not about like balancing work and life per se or like different responsibilities about finding like a, a sense of purpose in it all and having like that that all flow together in harmony um, and I think it's something I'm going to really work on after our interview so I'm really grateful for the conversation we were able to have I think we have a lot of similarities personally being from kind of rural places in the world going to the same college feeling the same senses of like disillusionment um, we're both complainers um, who like put a positive spin on the art of complaining. Yeah, and he's just really someone that I look up to in several respects. How he's been able to form a lifestyle that kind of embraces a lot of those ascetic principles that I really like about reading and writing and listening and being in the world with like this professional development that he's had where he's like a university professor and he's like actually impacting people's lives with all that knowledge he's able to transmit. And he's like a pioneer at it, too. So for all of those reasons, I think this is a really special interview for me. And I hope it's a special interview for you as well. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Michael Steger. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing, Tanner? Good. Happy to see you. You got a nice office there and really excited to pick apart your mind about how you've like devoted so much of your life to studying purpose. Um, academically and I think that's something I'm super interested in so thanks for creating the time to be able to have this interview yeah it's it's my pleasure I love uh, having the chance to learn from folks about their own journey on purpose and I love the idea of a podcast to go to the topic help other people you know get footholds in in a pretty a pretty squishy topic yeah yeah exactly squishy is a good word for it um, I think as like I've been doing the podcast, people have been kind of seeing me as like more of an expert now on purpose. And I feel like if anything, like I recognize how fluid and at changing and personal purpose can be. Um, and it's really hard to just like have an objective, like this is what purpose is. But yeah, it's really cool. You've devoted your life to studying so much of this. So I watched your TED talk. And at the end of it, you kind of posed this like reframe about purpose. Like what if we stop trying to seek purpose for ourselves and we try to give others meaning and purpose. I want to know why this is an important question to you and how you're doing it. Yeah, so there's a little back background in that. You know, first of all, I'll, I'll just talk about the kind of professional background in which my work exists. You know, when I, I first got into this area, I was really curious about meaning the existential challenges of life. I suppose for, for as long as I can remember as a person, uh, but professionally, got excited about meaning and existential topics when I was trained to be. I had started my first PhD program in in the mid '90s, and that that ended up uh, the program itself needed to call a hiatus. So I left and became a, a drug and alcohol counselor in a high school for a little while, 
And in that time, as I was training on the clinical side and then beginning my work with, with families and adolescents, I was just really curious about where you get to the point where you start making decisions uh, about what happens to you in life or about what you really want your life to be about in the first place, right? So um, that idea of meaning as a, as, a, as a way that you grapple with, with big stuff was really where I entered into it. And so when I started my PhD in 2000 at, at Minnesota, I, w- I really, I didn't have strong scientific aspirations for that program. It was a counseling psychology program. When I started, I thought I'd just go back to being a therapist. So I just really wanted to understand more about, about the topic. And around that time, this positive psychology thing started exploding. And the more I researched meaning and the more I familiar I became with positive psychology, the more I saw that people were just cashing in. <laughs> people were cashing in on like these really noble and you know virtuous topics, like making huge promises about gratitude. Now grit's a big deal. I mean, it's like stuff like that kept happening. And it, it seemed like what was occurring was people's hunger for flourishing and thriving in, in, in their time here on earth that it created this huge demand for people to tell them what to do with their lives, essentially, right? And, you know, pay 40 bucks for a book or 120 for a class online or something like that, or, you know, bring in a big speaker. And I really didn't want that to happen Happen to meaning. I think meaning and purpose and, and related concepts are, are deeply personal. I think they're all about the journey, all about the process, all about, you know, kind of like, striving and and i didn't want it to be a a seven seconds in the back of a napkin could give you your life's purpose sort of sort of a deal so part of it was that that response i wanted people to take individual responsibility of of regular people earnestly striving to understand what their lives are about trying to be the fulcrum on which we all are, are kind of pushing forward towards meaning and purpose so that was Partly, I hope, the, the effort to, to head off a little bit of the rush, the gold rush on purpose when people are tired of the, the last big thing, um, and also just really personalize it. So it's not just about you going and getting you know, purpose to add to your forgiveness, to add to your mindfulness, to add to your watch collection, whatever it is you have, but just to really make it a living thing that you share with other people. Mm. I really like that. Make it a living thing you share with other people. How has it come alive in your network, in the world that you interact with? It's really weird. Like I, you said something that struck me as, as very familiar to myself. I didn't get into this line of research to be an expert on what meaning and purpose should be for people. You know what I mean? So, you know, in my own life, it, there's this become this weird fusion where by just devoting a lot of time to understanding the research and doing my own studies, you, know, you get a chance to go before a group of people and and talk about what we know in the field or create a workshop or a retreat or, you know, even go into an organization and try and help them create more meaningful work experiences. You know, people want to know like what, you know, you know, like, what is it? What are the secrets to purpose and meaning in life? Mm -hmm. And like, essentially my answers always end up being like, ask the right questions and just keep asking them, you know, and that's not satisfying for anyone. So my, whole career sort of gets wound up in this idea of how can I sort of spread meaning or at least open doors for people to go into if they want to, where they can find for themselves some of the keys 
of their own journey for meaning. So it's weird. I, I just wanted to learn about this topic. I thought it was cool. And I wanted, I was annoyed that it was seen as a non-scientific topic when I started. So that was probably half the reason I wanted to hit it with, with good data. I didn't, I didn't believe that if all these other things could be studied that anyone could tell me I couldn't study this meaning thing. So, you know, I was like, well, we hit them with enough data, eventually they'll change their minds. Mm-hmm. And then once the data was through, then people really wanted to get to the heart of the matter, which is where I think we all start with this topic. What are we here for? What are we going to do with our opportunities? How do we balance the recognition of our own ephemeral nature with the non-negotiable desire we have to make something of our time? You know, all those sorts of things. How do individual people make amazing things out of stuff that from the outside looks like it would kill them? You know, so like all that sort of fascinating fabric of real people's lives. That's I'm finally getting more time to spend thinking about that and talking with folks about their own journeys. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned that you came into this because of your own journey. Um, but now you're like talking to lots of other people about their journey and you seem like you're really happy and excited about that. What are some examples of how the two have intersected and you yourself have made something remarkable that you couldn't believe you had made or that you use your time like in a really amazing way with recognition of our ephemeral nature? Like how does that manifest? Yeah. Well, well, I'll conf- I think I think this answers the question in both ways. So um, I, I don't think I'm I think I'm a good example of not really having any idea uh, of what I'm doing and making that a little bit more normal for other people to confront. Right. So <laughs> so the genesis of my interest in meaning, if I'm really honest, uh, goes back to like when I was seven, we moved to rural Minnesota. It was a pretty conservative part of the state and um, very small town, pretty homogeneous. And I think I must have stood out in some ways, particularly in Catholic school, as being a kind of pain in the ass. And so uh, I just never, it was years before I fit in, but I, but part of me was constantly aggravated by by what I saw as other people's weaknesses and not so long after began to see as my own shared weakness as well. And it was just... I just had these iconic images in my head, right? So um, back in those days, there was one thing to do. You drove up and down the one road in our town and you'd go to one of the fast food restaurants and hang out. And, you know, it was like weirdly like cruising from the fifties when this was the, you know, the seventies and eighties. And I, I, I swear to God, I saw something almost exactly like this happen hundreds of times. Uh, you know, car pulls up the, at the drive through orders the a big Mac or, a big McFish or something like that. It comes in a styrofoam clamshell. Mm-hmm. They drive off, take the burger out of the clamshell, out the window goes all the garbage, followed usually by a cigarette butt. And that to me just seemed like just astonishing that people would, that someone would do that, right? Without so casually do something like that or the, the bullying that would go on. It was just, it, it seemed like it required almost no thought to go ahead and bully someone. Uh, and yeah, I was I was guilty of things like that too, you know, like perpetuating the the sort of chain of of victimizing people. You get you get pushed around. The next person you can push around, you push that person around. You know, just like these, like it just seemed like all of our worst and most destructive tendencies on a mild level were so the the trigger was so light for that, mm-hmm. like like this casual, thoughtless 
sort of destructive tendency was out there. And for whatever reason, I really thought that if people thought about the fact that they're alive and if they thought about what they really want to do with their life, they wouldn't be such assholes. Like that was <laughs> so my, the, the genesis of my interest in meaning really goes back to being like a little kid and wondering why people are such assholes and making it so hard just to be alive unnecessarily without thinking at all. So, uh, you know, like that began like 40 years of overthinking stuff. Were you asking people those hard questions when you were a seven year old? Variations. Yeah. Yeah. Were you receiving satisfying answers? I, I don't think I was. I didn't have any satisfying answers either, but I could, I could manufacture pretend ones on the spot pretty well. Like I, I learned to BS, I think as a kid, uh, as a, as a, as a, um, compensation for not, not really being systematic with my time, right? So I could find myself trapped and come up with something that sounded pretty good to folks, but I don't think there were a lot of satisfactory answers. I mean, I did find a really great group of friends who did care about questions like that, you know what I mean? But most people didn't and were actively hostile <laughs> about being put on the spot with stuff like that. And that's actually sort of not, I mean, who wants to be asked? I, I'm, I'm sure I was a little aggressive in the way I asked it too, like to make a point, like, you don't even think about this stuff. You're worse than me. You know, like that was probably part of it too. But this, this, this concern that myself included was that we're just wasting time doing dumb things. And that even worse than that, that a lot of the dumb things we're doing make it harder for other people just to live. Right. So that whole thing was really, was really bothersome to me. Did that, um, did that sense of like feeling curious, endlessly curious and also like, um, perpetually bothered ever like come to a head where you just like I I need an answer I need to change something like I need to make a decision that like prioritizes this question and this answer above anything hmm I don't think so you know I think my, my tendency has always been to try to work with things conceptually before I start working with them in real life you know I'm definitely <laughs> I'm definitely an overthinker uh, and so I catch, I surprise myself in, in, in bad ways constantly, like find myself aggravated without knowing why, because I just have gotten out of touch. You know, it's like the essence of who I am and the essence of how I react to things around me. Um, I, I really struggle with uh, being mindful, being attentive to what's going on, not getting distracted. I'm a, I'm a super easily distractible person. But aren't you finding that those things are really key to, um, you know, living within your sense of purpose, living in the present um, is like, I don't know, seems like a common thread amongst all my guests. I, I, yeah, totally. I mean, I see the wisdom in it. I, it's never going to, I don't think it's ever going to be my journey <laughs> for, to be super mindful. And you know, so I, I have my own version of all that, which ends up being, end up feeling guilty when I, when I squander opportunities. And then that gives, that, that sustains just a little bit of extra momentum and extra dedication to, to do better the next time. So I'm a huge believer in really trying to do better. Do you have an example that comes to mind about how you squandered an opportunity and then it really motivated you to create an even bigger one or take advantage of a bigger one? Yeah. You know, honestly, so I, you know, I don't know if your listeners know this, but both, uh, both you and I, Tanner, we, we spent some time at McAllister College in, in, in St. Paul. And, you know, I, it's weird. I grew up always expecting I'd go to college because I was a nerd and, uh, and never knowing what I was actually supposed to go to college for. 
I think it was just so I went to college. Went to went to McAllister, mostly mostly engaged in uh, non-academic behaviors that weren't particularly good for me <laughs> in the long run. And you know, at, at the at the end of that, just thinking, I started realizing as like by my senior year, just how many amazing opportunities to learn and grow I'd squandered. Right. So I, I still remember some pretty pretty awesome moments from the calistry. You know, there's a I I didn't figure out my major until the literally the last minute, like the last deadline for juniors to file their major. I I chose psychology and it, it with no enthusiasm at all, just because I needed something and it had the most credits in psychology at that point. But I was all over the place. You know, That's I, how I chose my major too. <laughs> I don't, I don't think we are at all alone in McAllister doing it that way. But, you know, I was really curious about literature, creative writing, economics, religion, sociology, anthropology. I mean, if I had done, yeah. if I'd been more rigorous in math, I'm sure I would have gotten thrilled about chemistry and physics and just about anything captures my attention because a lot of it goes into this. It's one of the things I do have that maybe compensates for being generally mindless as a person is there's just a there's just a cruncher back there there's just like a, a huge composter that takes almost any type of information and, and turns it into some template story analogy about the human condition like uh you know so i was really that's really what i was doing the whole time like in economics it was the study of large groups of people and, and their actions or how people model incentives in their own experience and religion it was the transmission of cultural truth uh via social and individual experience you know and in all these different ways and creative writing it was creating something that wasn't there and trying to make your own interior world or some interior world that you've imagined uh, available and, and knowable to someone else i mean all of it is, is always getting turned into some sort of clue about what does it mean that we're human, that we die, that we exist, that we fight, that we love, all this sort of stuff. So when I uh, kind of drifted into my slacker years, I'm part of the Gen X, right? So we were the first slacker generation who just didn't do much. Uh, so I had my jobs that paid the bills. I remember living in a basement and I needed to be able to come up with about $80 a week to live. And I was able to do that. And you know, just all this time wasting. And eventually I realized that I'd squandered so much time really as a way to avoid taking responsibility for doing something with the opportunities I've been given, whether that's because of me having a reasonably well-functioning mind, me having lots of um, opportunity to higher education and culture based on where I lived and the school I went to and all that sort of stuff. So I did get serious about graduate studies and I really wanted to help. I really felt like the, the missing ingredient for me, I've been so absorbed in my own experience that I thought I had to help and uh, you know, I thought being a coming a therapist would be a good way to do that, or I could, I could just dive in with people into their lives where they were at. So when I when I got back to the first graduate program I went to, like I said, kind of fell apart while I was there. But when I went to Minnesota, that program was pretty hardcore on the research side and had you know hundreds of super geniuses wandering everywhere, you know, and so it was just really. I dove in, you know, I, I really dove in and I, and I took, I took advantage of those opportunities to really challenge myself at that point. That's when I decided, uh, here's what I'm curious about. There's not much research on it right now. They're telling me I can't do it, but I know what, 
they're expecting the output to look like to be persuasive. So I taught myself the tools to do it. I learned through repetition with some uh, brutally honest advisors, you know, and I just I thought I'm gonna make I'm gonna make something of this this opportunity. I also had both kids while I was in PhD program, so I had to be pretty efficient as well because I was home. My my partner and I split split our time halfway, so it was really just this is the time to make something happen. Hmm. Yeah, and you ended up winning like the best dissertation award, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, it was that that dissertation turned into kind of another another really humbling and yet for me at least personally inspiring experience so that was the creation of a, of a questionnaire the meaning of life questionnaire which is far away the the most cited or known part of my career so far and I think it's probably it's up there if it's not the most I've seen reports that's the most used questionnaire of its type uh, in the world today and just thinking that that of all those hours at Purple Onion and Dinky Town at, you know, six in the morning. I was living, we were living on the west side of St. Paul. So it was a, it was a mile walk to a long bus ride into Dinky Town. And then just, you know, on my, on my two and a half days when I could go to campus, I was really cramming the hours in. But one of the cool things that happens and, you know, the way in which I think the first way in which I started to realize that, um, you can touch people's lives, whether you know it or not, was I started getting emails from around the world. I don't, I don't mean that as like <laughs> famous around the world. I'm just saying like somehow people find this thing and they find this tool and it gives them a sense that they can do research. And you know, so I get emails from, you know, folks in the Philippines who, who wanted, wanted to translate this questionnaire into Tagalog so that they could um, use it as an outcome measure for a program they're creating uh, to teach women in prison how to read and how to do fabric work so that when they're out of prison, they'll have a, an economic you know, foothold in, in, their new, in their communities again. I was like, I would never think of doing that in a million years. You know what I mean? But like this- but Your uh, questionnaire spread to an impact that you could have never foreseen. I could never foresee it. I never could have done it myself either. You know what I mean? And yeah. it was just a manifestation of a lot of people were starting to be jaded, I think, and cynical about the answers given and, and the solutions kind of at the big buffet of ideas in our culture. I think everyone wanted a little bit more than what we're being shown as our options, which is like for okays and, you know, buy a house and, you know, work your way up to middle management and that's life. And I think everyone thought that was, I think a lot of people were thinking there's, there's really a lot more going on here. So I think I was a manifestation of that, that sort of desire and, you know, mm -hmm. folks around the world were also, so we became linked in, in this, in this weird way. And it was really inspiring to know that, you know, they would have found a different questionnaire if it wasn't me, but like together without even knowing each other, we made something really cool happen where, folks like talking about meaning and purpose is it's like reasonably mainstream now <laughs> you know mm -hmm. it's pretty cool i wonder how my podcast arose from your questionnaire i wonder what the string of links would look like um something that influenced me to start the podcast that was influenced by such and such that led to your questionnaire that's interesting yeah well you know it's funny because i can think of the way it was a lot easier before so when i 
so in 2000, I was starting to get serious about this. I, I pretty much knew the whole research and scholarly literature on meaning and purpose. It was maybe like three or 400 articles. And I, I pretty much knew all of them, you know, by, I could have conversations in citation format with people about all the <laughs> entire literature. And now, now it's well over like 2000 articles a year on the topic. So mm. the, the topic itself is literally unknowable it's it's so big now and it's it's such a weird thing i could trace exactly the the influences on me it was victor frankl you know mm-hmm. man's search for meaning is his it's weird his weirdly uh, magnetic dual account of a of a very difficult to understand theory of of human psychology blended with his extremely visceral uh narrative of his experiences in the concentration camps uh, at the hands of the Nazis in World War II and all that he lost and yet all that he came out of that experience with. And it was uh, Irving Yalom, you know, the existential psychology and existential psychotherapy and you know, these, these truths that we confront as human beings around we are ultimately going to face death and we are ultimately responsible and solely responsible for the nature of our existence. And we're ultimately doomed to be forever alone no one ever truly knowing what it's like to be us in our experience and yet likewise doomed to always want connection right so all these these uh you know Mm -hmm. these burdens that we that we feel and then when i started looking into the research literature uh visionary folks like carol riff and her model of psychological well-being and gary reeker uh, a canadian psychologist was also doing research on the topic and the folks all the way back to the 70s, Jamie Cronbaugh, and, you know, it's just, uh, I, c- I could see that each one of those had influenced me to do my thing, and their influence undoubtedly is conveyed to you, too, you know, from research that gets published using their work as a prior, so I think it's a real, to me, it's always felt like a real collective thing I just wanted to be a contributing and generative part of. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I mean, it's ever since I've started my podcast, I've had several times where it almost feels like I should get a PhD in this topic. Like I'm super motivated to read all these books people are recommending me. I really want to create a theory of my own. I, I'm a teacher, so I like feel this compulsion to like share knowledge and wisdom with others and have others talk about it. I have like a desire to start like courses on purpose with like small groups of people and like maybe yeah. have some like life coaching aspects to it just to get people like having accountability and practices that like, it's just fascinating to me. Do you think the academic lens is the the most superior way of studying this or would it be better to go live in an ashram in India or like, how do you recommend, um, yeah, like people Mm. immerse themselves in this if they really want to know about it? Like, I guess me, how do I immerse myself in the best? Yeah. I'm I'm, uh, quite as, not quite as multitudinous as Walt Whitman, maybe, but I definitely have a couple contradictions that I, like I've already mentioned, I, I really think my way into into life, even when I know I'm supposed to just experience it. So it's a constant challenge for me to just really be experientially available and open to just the flow of what's happening and actually, and actually even what people tell me of their own experiences, right? So um, at the same time, that I recognize all the limitations and even the problems with positivism, for instance, I, 
I, I find that in most domains, I really want the evidence and I want to make rational decisions about the limitations and the strengths of the evidence. And I want to be able to put all the data together and then see what probability I have of being comfortable with some degree of truth in there, right? So like that's the academic side. I think in terms of persuading, there's huge, there's huge strengths to an academic and a, and a scientific approach to like vexing what even Viktor Frankl called a spiritual question of meaning and purpose, because you get to um, you get to come to a point where some of the differences that cause us such problems, liberalism versus conservatism, atheism versus um, devotion, um, one race versus another, age versus age, male versus female, gendered versus non-gendered or gender fluid, right? All these, those are like contents of what make people value things in life, right? So if I, but it's not the valuing itself of life. So if we can show that having a life of meaning and being, being devoted to a purpose and feeling like your significance matters and, and has value and being able to make sense of life and have some sort of framework or story to help you understand your own experience. That to me is a cool focus because it doesn't matter whether that focus is all about uh, patriotism or all about individual liberty or all about diversity or all about tradition. In that sense, we each can build something that's valuable in our own lives. That's the piece where data is really, is really helpful, right? I mean, we can say to politicians, we can say to economists, we can say to doctors and we can say to, just as we can say to clergy or anybody else, data is really strong. If you score highly on this, on this scale or this scale, the odds that you'll still be alive in five years are double than if you score low on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? For older adults, there's been over a dozen studies showing now that sort of a conclusion that gets people's attention in a way that um, saying, you know, my experience in an ashram really made me see things in new light or Mother Teresa was this huge um, paragon of virtue, right? Or Ram Das is really profound to think of, you know, hear from. Like the, it's not better or worse. It's just more persuasive in some settings and in some ways helps us find common ground um, to at least have places to talk. And like that purpose, that personal aspect for me has become more and more important. You know, I've gone, I still do like talks and keynotes and, and sort of lectures and stuff like that. But, but even more, I'm, I'm really working to create like retreats and workshops, right? Where people come together. My job is to provide some sort of initial shared understanding based on the research and then create experiences where people can, can go deep into their own concentration with meaning and, and those topics and then share and build together new ways of understanding. And mm -hmm. I think that, that that's the other side of me. That's the stuff that in the end really matters, you know, mm -hmm. but your own personal experiences is, is only ever going to be satisfying if it comes from a place that you feel is legitimate and authentic. I don't think it's going to come, at least for me, even as much as I love data, it never came from the data. It always came from people. <laughs> I don't even like people that much. <laughs> I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say it like that, but you know, people are problematic. So having opportunities to see 
these like beautiful strivers in people and feel like it's okay for me to be authentic, whether that's being confused, whether that's being frustrated, whether that's frustrated with myself or whether that's, you know, not getting it. I think that's, that's where the magic happens. So you're like, the, only, the people you do like are people that are strivers, that are authentic, that are vulnerable, and that are like able to admit their, their own like faultiness. Well, that's not the only type of person I like. I do like <laughs> those people. I think that's who I try to be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's who I try to be. You know, there was a, when I, when I, I ran across this sci-fi book. It was pretty challenging, some crazy ways for an 11-year-old kid in rural Minnesota, but it was a, a book called Dahlgren by Samuel R. Delaney. And uh, it, I remember this quote from it. It was like, the trick isn't learning to love humanity. The trick is learning to love those members of it who happen to be close at hand. And, <laughs> like, unless you're amazing, I think loving humanity when you look at what's going on in the world is maybe even an impossible job. But anyone who's near you, I think you can, there's a, there's a pathway. I think there's a pathway to learn to love those folks. And so that's been a big challenge for me being someone who didn't really fit in, uh, didn't really, I'm an introvert. I don't really need a lot of social contact. So um, really it's when folks come together and, and I can challenge myself to be authentic in relationships and when people can be authentic. I'd say authenticity, authenticity is the, is the main thing. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I would never hold out my affection for a person or my approval of a person as anything anyone should want to strive for. It's just my own personal experience with another person. And, you know, I'm pretty unconditional in my positive regard for people nowadays. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a big deal if someone can really be as close to the surface with who, with what their essence is around another person. That's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Mm -hmm. So it's always a challenge for me to, to do that. And when someone can do that and I get to see it, that's a, it's, an, it's a very affecting phenomenon. I'm just full of awe and appreciation when I see it. So how did you know that your wife was the person that you wanted to be with? <laughs> uh, you know, some of the, some of it's hard to, hard to put into words. What I would say is, though um that that the key the key realization for me around around my wife she also went to McAllister and uh I I became interested in her while well, we were both McAllister students but it was it was a couple years afterwards that things finally clicked into place from my perspective um but I think the big the big piece in the middle of of all that was that I realized I, I wasn't really a good enough person to have a relationship with someone who was great. I was a good enough person to have sort of halting, awkward, ultimately disappointing relationships with, you know, the types of people who would tolerate me as I was. And, and so it was really a big part of, um, in a lot of ways, I mean, it, it wasn't her responsibility and, um, I don't even know if she would love the idea of this, but it was, you know, in, in my realization, I, I realized that if I wanted to ever be with someone who is as, as wonderful and wise and positive and caring and nurturing and smart as, as, as her, I was going to have to be a better person. And so 
that sort of uh, that sort of journey, you know, that sort of journey involved everything involved you know, driving across the U.S., flying around naked in the desert, this you know, packing up and moving from one part of the country to another. Why is running around naked in the desert and driving across the U.S. essential to being a better person? Yeah, well, for me it was. I mean, because when I grew up, you know, watching Easy Rider or some of the other sort of wander off ideas. But for me, I think being, being, there's something about the wandering in the desert idea. You know, that was, that was what I was craving. I just wanted to be a place where um, everything's in relief. You know, like even in it's, Minnesota's highly rainforest, but there's stuff growing everywhere. <laughs> you know, there's, there's moss, there's grass, there's clover in the grass, there's saplings, all sorts of stuff. And then, in my trips to the desert when I was, uh, you know, sort of like the, the college, post-college years, it, it was so different. And, and you just felt like you could look at one thing at a time. Mm. You know what I mean? And that was, that was different for me. That was a different experience for me to just really try to be, this was pre-mindfulness, but just try to be in a place where you're open to what's happening. There was the sound of the wind there was the smell of the sage or the pignon. There was the color of the three colors maximum of like the rocks. You know what I mean? Like it was just a very, in, in some ways you're stripped down to some something about you that you're not gonna be distracted by wondering when the bars close. You're not gonna be distracted by uh, trying to figure out when they stop serving breakfast at the diner and switch over to lunch. You're not gonna be distracted by the mm -hmm. aggravations of being in traffic or in social situations where you fail to meet your own standards or you know, you're just you're just you and so that's always been the I would say that's always been one of the most difficult things for me personally is just to be me instead of projecting into the world all my dissatisfaction with me and my life and you know focusing that that anger on other people it was just really a chance to be me take stock figure out why I kept doing things that were dumb and try to figure out how to what turn that same aggravating question on myself. What am I here for? What am I going to do with my life? And when you, yeah, when you came out of the desert and asked yourself those, like, did you make immediate decisions that were life-changing kind of decisions? I did, but I mean, like weird, weird life-changing decisions. It was more about an intention to start on a path rather than, a specific project. I mean, I know there's folks who have a life-changing experience and they, you know, like you look at the founder of Tom's Shoes, right? You know, Blake McCoskey went to Argentina to go play polo and to drink red wine, uh, got involved and curious in a, in a shoe drive in a small village for children with no, where no one had shoes or they were hand-me-down shoes and went back and thought, I can't see something like that and not do something about it. So he founded Tom's Shoes, you know? And yeah. I heard that story on a podcast. It's a beautiful story. It's incredible, right? I'm not that guy though. <laughs> like I, I didn't come away with any like lasting idea. My first idea, <laughs> uh, I'm just like a guy of intentions and just trying to get a little bit better. Uh, mostly a bumbler, right? So my first idea was I thought that, because um, I started reading a lot more, uh, getting more serious again about philosophy and, and things like that. And I thought what the world needed was for everyone to read philosophy. So my first project was I signed myself the challenge of reading all of the philosophy, whatever that meant, <laughs> uh, 
and then uh, and then turning it into a series of books that would be structured like foreign language books. So I wanted to create like, you know, use the logic, figure out the grammar, figure out the usages, figure out the best learning tools for philosophy, so everyone could speak philosophy just like we speak Spanish or we speak Mandarin or something like that. So that was my first project. Obviously, it's like a hefty project. Yeah, I went nowhere. It was, I mean, I, I spent some glorious time thinking about it. I was also living in Portland, Oregon at the time. So I, that didn't even stand out as having a weird project. That was just a regular Portland thing to do. So, um, but yeah, like it was part of that. Like I, I, I doubled down. I wanted to become a therapist. I wanted to become uh, knowledgeable about things I didn't understand. It's actually why I ended up going to Minnesota after my, my prior experience uh, was because I didn't think I understood research. Like when I did my master's thesis, I didn't really get the stats. I didn't really understand research methods. And I, that bothered me that I didn't know something. So I went someplace that was known for the empirical side of things. So that's kind of been my attention. If I, if I find myself veering away from something, I, I make sure I, I dive back into it, I guess. Do you ever wonder if going only like so much into research is like, I don't know if the right word but it would be like a crutch to avoid actually having to start like a real business or have to like, create a real product or service like you're just on an endless path of study or does it really feel like you are giving like the most purposeful way you can back to society wow those are two really different questions in my mind so the so the first is uh you know i'm a, I'm a university professor you know the the value proposition is is sort of interesting from a labor perspective right so i don't i don't necessarily produce tangible goods but i need to produce value in order to justify uh, what I view as a very privileged position. I mean, essentially, part of my job description is to think about the most interesting questions that have faced humanity throughout its history and, and try to figure out ways to answer them. Yeah. With no, with no particular timeline, right? You're I lucky mean, for that, have that. <laughs> totally, totally fortunate. And it was, you know, it's a lot of work of the type that a lot of people don't like to do in order to get here, you know, like, hundreds of reading hundreds of articles a year uh learning how to do statistical analyses when you don't when you start off not really understanding math um a lot of 16 18 hour days writing six hours a day and having nothing to show for it because you're just learning how to write you know like stuff that's not it's not productive in some ways but it's also a barrier to entry <laughs> for a lot of people who have really great ideas but don't but don't want to do spend their time doing that sort of stuff. So, so the value proposition, as I see it, is that you know it's defined within universities differently here and there. But you know, I teach positive psychology classes. I teach classes on abnormal psychology and psychopathology. And to me, they're all it's just all part of the same thing. Like, what are we as humans being alive? And so, I want students to come to my classes. I want them to get a really great experience diving into the data, diving into the information, diving into the stories that people have about either striving for the good or recovering from the bad or, or some combination of both. I want them to practice the stuff we read about on the paper, whether that's gonna be uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy or whether it's gonna be uh, gratitude and savoring, right? So I feel like what I've learned how to do is read a lot and write a lot and analyze at a pretty high level and so I can use that skill to, to, to provide people with um, on-ramps to cool ideas. 
And so that's part of the value proposition. But I will also say, you know, I, I, again, a lot of my stories seem to go back to me trying to be a better person. Um, I think that's I think that's part of it. You know, I, I it was distracting to get off on particularly the type of research track I got off on, which was um, measurement. For to to develop a scale, you need massive amounts of data relative to other types of studies, and and then you have a product as opposed to an idea. So the first years of my research career, I had a, a product that I wanted to better understand. I had the meaning in life questionnaire that I wanted to understand. I was not, I suddenly, you know, it, it was like years down the road where I realized I wasn't, was I still interested in meaning or was I only interested in the meaning in life questionnaire? You know what I mean? So hmm. just, just pounding through data, you know, learning how to write, learning how to express ideas. And then it was this the story is is mostly apocryphal but it's definitely an amalgam of many many different different true moments so this in this in this pretend story the stand-in for years of, of slowly coming to a very obvious realization so i come home from work and uh my partner asked me how's your day and I'm like oh it was fantastic yeah you know, it was you know I, I had like a four solid hours to sit down with the data you know, making sure that the model specifications were right, making sure that the, you know, the missing data had been imputed correctly, you know, making sure that all the variables names were correct, getting the model to run, looking at the fit indices, the covariant matrix, covariation matrix looks great. You know, the hypothesized model fit better according to AIC and the BIC than the other one. And so, as you could tell, this was a clearly a fabulous day, right? And she's like, <laughs> oh, it's great. Right? And I'm like, well, how about you? What were you up to? And she's like, uh, Oh, that was a pretty good day. You know, um, you know, Timmy, I've been working with him for like three years. He's got, he's got some um, articulation problems, but obviously we're working, getting his tongue more forward in his mouth. And, and, you know, after our last session, apparently he went home, he was able to do that. And so now he made his first friend in school. I'm like, She's having a real impact. I'm like, God bless it. How can this be happening? Right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I study mattering and I don't do anything that matters. So that was sort oh, of, man. so that was years ago. I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something better with this. It's a privilege to be able to study this stuff and it's enjoyable and I can spend hours writing and reading by myself. And, but eventually I realized like, I've gotta, I've gotta be able to produce value for folks. I gotta figure out either a way to talk about meaning or help people have experiences around meaning or spread the word around meaning or support other people who are better at all those sorts of things than me so that people don't feel lost with the topic. That doesn't feel too big, too religious, too atheistic, too fuzzy, too pressury, you know, to be able to just have meaning as a part of what you're doing with your life. So that's been a big change over the last, I would say, eight years, and particularly the last five years. Just getting out there and trying to create stuff and experiences that can help people, help people on their own feel like meaning is a really mundane thing with really sort of magical and mystical outcomes. People of Purpose is launching its very first ever course, Path to Purpose. Path to Purpose is a new course I'm launching born from the powerful People of Purpose podcast. It draws on a lot of the concepts and messages of the podcast, but it is the very first course and one-on-one coaching program built by me, your podcast host, Tanner Badgley. 
I've built this course to create strategies, practices, and actions that will allow you to trailblaze yourself down your most authentic path of purpose. It's called Path to Purpose. Over our three months together, each member of the program will learn everything they need to successfully carve out their own path to purpose. Our purpose-seeking students will learn about nine different areas of their lives that they can better understand, practice, and master to open up their path to purpose. This individualized course will conclude with a self-designed three-week final project that propels you down your own, very own, dreamlined path to purpose. I, Tanner Babsey, will be with you all the way, hosting weekly one-on-one -on -one phone conferences, facilitating all course content, and being available for any question you may have along the way. Everyone taking the course will be walking their own journey, but you won't feel alone in the process. You'll have a team to support your growth. It took a 50-foot fall down the mountain at Yosemite National Park to reach rock bottom and another concussion, breakup, and death in the family and purposeless job to find myself back there. I know the pains of living a life without direction, without guidance, vision, or support. I know how hard it is to decipher what works and what is just gimmicky marketing set up for someone else's success and your pain. I believe the world needs more purposeful people more than ever. It is waiting and ready for you to come alive. That's why I've designed a holistic course that will move you from pain into passion and purpose. This course incorporates my learnings from hosting 40 plus podcast interviews with some of the most purposeful people you'll meet, insights from my 10 day silent meditation course in Thailand, takeaways from my month long yoga teacher training in India, and the multi-year ongoing rehab from life-changing brain injuries. This course is a product of my intense mission to find purpose as I move to Thailand all by myself to teach English and blog about the learnings of my life. Now that I am living from a place of my truest identity and purpose, it's time to teach and guide others into theirs. Today, I have so many powerful habits, routines, and mindsets that I draw from every day, and it's time to use them to create a more joyful, loving, kind, happy, peaceful, and purposeful world. Welcome to our first ever course of Path to Purpose. If you or a loved one is interested in joining our next cohort, send me a direct message at People of Purpose or an email to People of Purpose Podcast at gmail.com. Spots are limited and it's first come, first serve. When I was stuck in a dark room for a month on work leave from suffering my fourth concussion in the middle of a cold Minnesota winter and in denial of a breakup that was never coming back, I didn't know for sure if I'd ever get back my joy, meaning, and satisfaction with life. It took intentional work, undying belief, and the right people and opportunities to come into my life. I was able to get my best self back, and you can too. I believe we each have a responsibility to find our purpose. The world needs you to come alive for the sake of each other and for the sake of our planet. I know that together through purpose, we can wake up that core part of us that remains dormant, untapped, unutilized, and underappreciated. Path to Purpose will water this little seed at the seed of your soul, and over time it will grow and blossom into a forest of purpose. Make sure you give yourself the best gift you could ever give or receive. Sign up for our next Path to Purpose course and give yourself a sense of meaning and purpose for the rest of your life. Here's to becoming people of purpose. So what is the center for meaning and purpose you've created and how is it different than anything else that's ever been created? I don't know if it's different than anything else that's ever been created, but uh, it is, as far as I know, the first center focused on meaning and purpose. That might be different. Um, but essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to pull together 
resources. And at this point, it's, it's, a, it's a volunteer labor of love. We host a, a, an introduction to positive psychology class online people can take. Um, that's taught regularly like through CSU, so it's, it's not a bargain necessarily. It's just like a regular online course, but we put that together. Our mission is to, is to generate new information and disseminate existing and, and emerging information about how best to live a meaningful life. And we have educational, we have outreach, we have research missions. And we've been able to uh, do a few cool things, right? So we've been able to fund the first that I know of, for sure here at, at Colorado State University, the first graduate research grant uh, competition on meaning and purpose. So we were able to award, make five awards last year, and hopefully we can do the same this year. And once, once summer comes, I my promise to myself is to make the website functional. And one of the very first things we'll do is we've been working on a, a six-part workshop uh, for facilitating understanding meaning in your own life better and learning some tools for, for fashioning meaning. And uh, we'll start trying to figure out a way to make that a, a freely available resource, whether as a webinar or just as a, a manual or something like that. So um, I think it's just trying to be able to find one place to pull together people's interests and in, in meaning and purpose and, and start getting information to people's hands. One of the hopes is we'll start having uh, retreats and workshops here in Fort Collins and you know that could be a regular thing where people who are curious can come and maybe start to lay the seeds for a community to grow. Mm -hmm. So this is a graduate school program then? Uh, it's technically housed within the um, Department of Psychology but uh, the reason there's so many graduate students involved is that they you know they hear about it sooner and are here longer than undergraduate students, but mostly it's, uh, you know, me and a couple other faculty from three different colleges here at CSU. And then um, I think five grad students are involved right now. Does it offer like certifications and certain things so you can incorporate into your practice um, in like your professional life or is it a degree or what is it? Not currently, right? Right now what we offer is just one uh, introduction to positive psychology class we just have we just have to be smart with the resources we have, which are are pretty much people's time and what they want to devote their attention to. So we've been mostly focusing on trying to build a little bit larger group of people who are interested in helping out with the center. And uh, you know, right now when I give talks or I give workshops, I'm doing that on behalf of the center instead of just Mike. So that's one way we've been trying to get meet other partners and. I think we might be involved in helping setting up uh, uh, conferences. So I think we're, we're kind of really focused on what are we doing day in, day out, and not necessarily on developing, you know, courses or certificates at this time. Okay. So if I wanted to take your introduction to positive psychology class, what would that take? Uh, so that runs just like any other online course here at CSU. So you go to, CSU online and uh, look up it's just PSY 300 and you go ahead and you know see if you can if you like the sounds of it if you've taken other positive psychology coursework in the past it's, it's probably a little too basic for you I haven't but I'm really interested in doing it and I think it would benefit a lot of the community building I'm trying to do around people of purpose 
um, as like someone that wants to establish themselves as like a leader in this topic for people that are seeking, like I should have some, some real academic understanding, I think, other than just anecdotal. I think the advantage of an academic understanding is, um, so one of the big pieces is the specific type of critical thinking that, that we get trained in, particularly the longer we're in academia, it can, it can be, it can bring its own blinders, but the idea to think the way of the skills of thinking in a really structured way through complex and uh, even sometimes formless issues is, is really important. I think when it comes to something that feels really, in my opinion, it's really important when it comes to something that feels so personal and, and uh, important as meaning, you know, so one of the issues with Mm -hmm. anecdotal stuff is of course, that it, it worked for one person, but that person is different than a lot of the other people, <laughs> you know, hearing that information later down the road. And um, it, it, it's difficult for us to, to know what to make of one person's individual story, right? And, and so with, from the academic standpoint, we, we, we are able to cast a wider net. So what is like a program that maybe would take like a semester or a year that would be pretty immersive and have like lots of different angles seen through an academic lens that would give you a pretty solid um, place to start from if you're going to be teaching, leading and mentoring, coaching other people? Like I know that you teach at the Whole Being Institute. Are you a part of that? Is that a good example? Yeah, that's a really immersive group. I I, uh, I had my first chance to have an an immersive experience with leading immersive experience around meaning and purpose with those folks. I think just, uh, I'm terrible with dates. I think it was two weeks ago. So uh, I'm not going to necessarily recommend a specific program, but there are a number of certificates and masters and applied positive psychology programs out there. One of the things that one of, one of the features that they typically have in common is there will be, um, you know, reading of articles, a, a slow process of identifying what part of that, the whole world of positive psychology you're most interested in. And then they, they, they often seem to help people feel encouraged or, or forced even uh, to develop a, a, a particular project. And it's usually pretty applied. So examples I've heard about before um, would include folks who are doing a master's in applied positive psychology at um i can't remember the university but there's there's one in it's in mexico um and in this case they were again doing a strength-based program for women working in the maquilladoras along the along the border between the u.s and, and mexico so these are women who've been you know sort of assigned a low status a low status position in in society and um, relatively impersonal, relatively impersonal career opportunities, and through under through exploring character strengths, the ultimate hope was to give these uh, the women who would be enrolled in these programs confidence to start micro businesses as mm-hmm. well, based on their based on a firm grounding of of who they are at their best, rather than what opportunities society uh, seems to shut them out of. So that was, that's an example. Um, I love that. Yeah, it's really cool. There's another example. This, this is another Mexican university out of, of Monterrey. 
uh, Tech Millennial University and uh, Universidad de Tech Millennial, and their students were creating a mentoring program to help people mentor around purpose. So finding people who've accomplished something in life, helping that that person come to see uh, the elements of purpose and meaning in what they've done, and then help them have conversations with people who are just kind of getting started. Mm-hmm. So those types of, of programs, I've, <laughs> there's, there's a, an unending number of, of variations. I mean, there's, there's uh, positive psychology informed animal therapies with horses or, or dogs. I mean, just the list goes on and on. So a lot of those programs will have a real applied interest. And, uh, and in fact, in, our, in the positive psychology classes I teach, whether they're on campus or they're online, um, we really, we have assignments that are really focused on people taking research experiments sometimes that move the needle on positive psychology mm-hmm. variables like gratitude or like happiness or positive emotions and have them actually do those activities for a week and then sort of reflect on, on whether that fit them or whether it didn't fit them. So everyone who goes through our courses unless they're total liars, has, has already had hands-on experience with at least four positive psychology interventions they can t- continue using or they can share. So that's mm. one of the takeaways of all, a lot of these positive psychology um, post, post or graduate level programs is to try and teach people how to develop new interventions that are science-based. So if people are really passionate about this and it is their purpose to apply purpose in the world, um, I find that a lot of people have to just resort to being in volunteer roles um, around this, and then they have to still work some normal nine to five jobs that's not that purposeful. What like overarching recommendations do you have for someone to actually build like a life that can actually um, like, fund itself or have like some element of income stream from it? I, I don't know because I haven't I haven't myself done anything to create an income stream uh, on the topics of meaning and purpose other than. You get paid a salary to be a professor, right? Yeah. But, I mean, I could t- study anything though, right? So I could stop studying being a professor right, right now and study something else and still have that same salary. Oh, I see. A lot of, a lot of what I do is not necessarily linked, linked to meaning purpose scholarship. So um, I would say that, you know, some of, the, some of the pieces that seem important, right now it seems to me to be, um, there's huge chasms between the two, types of people I run into the most who are working on meaning and purpose. So there's the famous purpose people, right? Whether those are people who have a sense of purpose or not, you know, there's like, there's like gurus out there, right? Um, And they might be gurus because they have a strong um, spiritual aura around them or have spiritual proficiency, whether that's within the, in in Buddhist teachings or in some other teaching Mm -hmm. uh, or even just kind of like, what to my eyes looks like kind of made up teaching with full of slogans. Like there are people who that really speaks to. And, and so they are, they're reaching folks on big levels. There's uh, then there's like these like corporate meaning and purpose, you know, gurus who've come up with something that, that people want to bring them in to hear about their experiences within um, in organizations. Right. So like Simon Sinek has a pretty good, uh, a pretty good industry going with coming in and helping him companies think about meaning and purpose. I know Blake McCoskey, we mentioned from Tom's, uh, set up a sort of social entrepreneur 
incubator, right? So he mm -hmm. brings in people who want to do social entrepreneurship, and then he is the entrepreneur of entrepreneurship, right? So like, there's that. There's a real. There's not a lot of names, but but they're they're prominent at the very very high levels of like, I guess wage earning within meaning and purpose service delivery, and then there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of other folks. You know, I'll, I'll, I don't know what group. I don't know if I get to count myself within this group, but a regular job um, where you infuse it with as much meaning and purpose content as you can find time for, right? So this would mm -hmm. be, this could be, this could be therapists, this could be teachers, this could be HR managers and mid-level management in the company. This could be um, people working in pastoral care. This could be oncologists, right? You know, it could be, um, you know, people who are trying to make it easy for people to shop local. I mean, it like a be, very central element of the job is very mission driven towards. Yeah, they found a way to like have job A, but make it a purpose driven. Yeah, well. I get that. I'm as a teacher right now. I definitely feel that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what there isn't is, is a huge, that huge middle ground that we start, that we see kind of build with happiness in general right there's a million different happiness or mindfulness things especially out in the bay area where you're at you know there's like all sorts of destination types of things on personal exploration well-being wellness mindfulness you know wisdom all these sorts of things going on and that's not quite happened with with meaning of purpose yet because i think it's a challenging topic for people to simplify and so until until it can be really simplified you don't get it doesn't seem like there's quite as easy of an on-ramp to the idea as there would be about gratitude or as there would be about, you know, fill in the blank. So my thinking is that the, the part that's missing, the part that's difficult is that as if, if we're curious about meaning and purpose, we tend to be a little bit of the oddball types already when it comes to, um, market capitalism right yeah so, i've always felt just like very out of touch kind of always despise it a little bit because it seems to squash meaning and purpose exactly squash. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly and so you know i think I've, I've spoken to hundreds of people who are really fantastic folks making huge impacts in in, in their their jobs their walks of life some of them who are all about meaning um and and my sense is that it just needs we just need to figure out we need to just be together right that's that's what it is like there's not necessarily a template out there that's going to be easy to follow we we can't we can't come out i know that people have come out with books recently on meaning and purpose i just don't see them having huge impact right because it's not the same thing, I don't think, in some ways. It's not interchangeable with some of the smaller topics like um, like grit. It's it doesn't have thousands of years of tradition, like some of like a similarly complex and difficult to wrap your head around concept like mindfulness. You know, so we're sort of somewhere in between. It's it's a pretty recent, fairly intellectualized, yet now really familiar topic. Um, my my sense is that what we need in order to um, create more viable 
long-term possibilities for people who make a living and do what they love on this topic, which is what we want to do is help other people do what they love, right? Mm -hmm. And meaning and purpose is that uh, we're going to have to kind of create the community, right? We're going to have to create, we're going to have to come together, look for opportunities to share what we know. And you know, the ultimate byproduct of that is like a lot of really great invitations and content for people of every stripe. Um, but, you know, we're kind of like, uh, I don't know, like we're kind of like organic farmers in the 1970s. Like what? Before Whole Foods, before mm. you know Kroger and everybody else had their own organic line, it was a, it was a network of small farmers uh, doing something they deeply believed in and creating markets by working together, mm-hmm. sharing principles, but not everyone agreed the same thing, right? So there's, I kind of feel like that's that's where we're at. It didn't seem like it was a thing that the market would support. You know, even when I started in 2000, it wasn't, a th- I didn't think I was going to get a job as a professor, you know, doing meaning purpose stuff. Uh, I was glad that that changed, but I knew I had to work harder than people studying more traditional topics. I think that's what we all need to do too. Like if we want to do it on our own terms and really be have fidelity towards what we think this topic deserves, I think anything that finds a market solution immediately is going to be it's going to, need to take, require really high skills on our part to simplify in a way that doesn't strip it of meaning, no pun intended. Um, or someone's going to come along and they're going to, you know, slap the name on it of meaning, purpose, whatever it is. And it just won't be, it won't be quite right. And they'll make money on it, but it, it wouldn't be the thing we'd want to do with that topic. So that's a big question I'm asking myself recently is like, I'm a poor teacher in San Francisco and I'm overworked and I want to really focus in on the meaning and purpose aspect. But, you know, the whole thing is like get them the STEM skills, get them the like English abilities to be able to get to top colleges and be part of the rat race sort of mentality. And I'm, yeah, that's definitely not my purpose to create that. Um, so, yeah, like like you said, working with high fidelity on your own terms but I, I have to interact with the market, especially like as an American in the Bay area, like you yeah. have to have an income source. So like, this is a big question I'm, I'm constantly ruminating on that I have not been able to answer yet. Yeah. Well, I think the the concept that I use when I try to understand, um, when I try to understand this and, you know, again, it might look like I've got a great solution because I'm, I'm earning a steady salary and I get to study meaning and all that sort of stuff, but I know how far away I am from the being able to provide people with what I, even knowing what I should be providing people with, right. You know, like, like fully dedicated to this topic, really talking with people, really being in their world, uh, really being around the world, right. Cause we're still in such a Western European centric version of this being a purpose topic as it is, you know, just really, dedicating the time to creating really good programs people could come to great online tools people can use dialogue with folks everything's like a quick email these days you know what i mean like i know i'm pretty far away from where i'd like to be so i think the equation i think about is is just harmony right within your life so like people talk about work-life balance i just think harmony is a better it's a better motif, right? It's the way that the nature of work is, has changed. Mm-hmm. And for me, then that means that all the aspects of my life will ebb and flow in terms of how much time they need, how much effort they need, and how much attention I need to give them. 
um, but it's not it's not failed effort. It's not lost time. It's not misdirected attention. If all those pieces are are still within the flow of my purpose, within the flow of my integrity, driven by my values, um, you know, I can spend extra time at work. I can spend extra time with family. I can spend extra time wandering around making the desert. Oh, I haven't done that in a while, right? I can do all these sorts of things and it's all part of the same flow. It's not really a shortcut. So spending six more hours doing one thing a month versus six more hours doing another thing in a month, um, it's all still time spent trying to be a better person and trying to figure out good solutions for the, you know, for the mysteries we face when we're just trying to live, right? What sort of spaces bring that out in you? Um, are you part of any, like, how are you a part of communities? Are you part of any spiritual communities that really build up that in yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm part, it's, you know, you're, you're talking an introvert, so uh, not someone who, like, I feel really comfortable, it's weird, I feel comfortable in, with public speaking, I feel comfortable in, in sort of like groups that are around for a purpose, uh, particularly if I'm leading those groups weirdly, but like small talk, things I, I die I die a slow death in small talk situations right so you know like kind of like chit chatty groups of people who just like get together to, to chat those those freak me out a little bit um, so that's not the type of group I tend to I tend to gravitate towards the, the groups that I'm in tend to be folks wherever they're at if we've had a chance to meet um, in a lot of so a lot of folks who are interested in positive psychology interested in meaning researchers, clinicians, interesting, just interesting folks. You know, there's actually some pretty strong international networks of folks like that out there, share ideas. Um, I've been really fortunate to work with um, uh, any number of folks. The one, the one woman who popped into my mind, her name is Panit Russo-Netzer. She's Israeli. We just decided on a whim to try to do a workshop together. It turned out to be just incredible uh, incredible experience and so that's that was a gift of someone i knew by name and reputation and chatted with at a, one of these meaning conferences and made a really strong connection i thought you know what who knows let's take a risk right so that's that's really powerful for me like yeah like my social circle in my own mind goes from like my family and i really care about what happens to my family and then I've got some old buddies and then it's pretty much the whole rest of the world. Like I don't really have a lot of inter intermediary, you know, mm -hmm. where I'm much I'm any more active on trying to figure out what to do in my neighborhood than I am or trying to figure out what to do about humanity as a member of it. So um, I like stuff like that. I like stuff. I like hearing stories from perspectives I would never have guessed at from, from a spiritual standpoint. Um, kind of like a weird blend of things at this point but i i do still feel um i still feel engaged with with the type of seeking that was familiar to me growing up catholic and you know not the not the best at it these days i would have to say but you'd like not i'm not just not a dogmatic person in general so as a way of trying to consider where we are in this huge existence. That oftentimes starts off as, as one of my starting points. 
not at the cost of other perspectives, but just as a way to, to think about. Catholicism and Christianity? Yeah, or, yeah, I guess so, right? I, there's some things about, there's some things about that, that side of me that I think are really, like I love the oldness, like there's something just old and stodgy about Catholicism I think is, is really valuable to me. Like no one, no one today would choose that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it just has happened over thousands of years that I, I, I really respect, I really respect stuff that has stood up over time. And I really am suspicious of choices we make nowadays. You know what I mean? Like there's something about that. I think we, we tend to make easy choices. We tend to go for convenience. We tend to jettison things that are too challenging. What's your involvement in um, Eastern practices and Eastern philosophies? You mentioned Ram Das earlier, but those seem to yeah. be very like like you said, like Catholicism has that like long history. So does Eastern oh, yeah. philosophies well, is related to by thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so I don't I'm not really great at practicing anything. I guess I should say that. Um, so my practice devotion to any one particular approach is pretty is pretty poor, pretty sporadic. Uh, occasionally I get really excited about trying to um, engage in some of the rituals that would go along with, you know, it's like a, like a meditation or mindfulness practice would be similar to maybe some of the um, seasonal rituals that would be familiar in, in the Christian religion or some prayer rituals in the Christian religion or something like that. Um, from a philosophical standpoint, to me, I, I don't, I don't get, very caught up in like orthodoxy differences. I don't have any idea which, if any of the major religions are true. I'm not even sure how I would ever figure that out. That's the positivist in me, right? Like there's no way to collect data on that question. So I might as well be happy with never knowing the answer. <laughs> and uh, you know, so, so for me, like I, I do, I start off as a, as a studier of those religions, right? Um, James Lane was the professor of, of world religions when I was in McAllister and you know it's Eastern religions in particular and I just remember I think I took three classes with him and just loved just loved going down those those journeys into Hinduism and Confucianism, Taoism, Shinto, Buddhism, Jainism. It was also is also fascinating and to me again I already mentioned I've got that kind of like a composter in my head it all seemed to be about the same sort of thing epic of gilgamesh the the bhagavad gita you know the writings of confucius schopenhauer shakespeare what's the same thing that they're all about they're all trying to figure out what we're doing here mm -hmm. right? they're all trying to figure out what is it life asks us a question once we realize we're alive we're immediately confronted with the question right now what mm -hmm. To me, like that's, it's all grist for that mill. It's all interesting, sometimes hugely massive and incredibly impressive meditations on that question, but it's all sort of meditations on that question, right? Like you go, you take a look at, you spend some time looking at a Hieronymus Bosch, uh, you know, Garden of Earthly Delights or Last Judgment. And then you take a look at some of the um, more busy and, colorful Hindu paintings of, you know, the array of deities and demi-deities and afterlife and 
uh, it's it's all very interesting to think about. Like there's scary things that want us to do one thing. There's scary things that want us to do another thing. There's enticing things that want us to do one thing. There's mm-hmm. a spiritual world we can't see. There's all that sort of stuff. Like we know, generally speaking, what we're supposed to do, right? We know, generally speaking, what it is to be a good person. Do you have any specific beliefs or um or th- like principles that you hold on to when times are really confusing or really hard or you're finding a disillusionment or you're suffering or anything like that? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, some of them are like, I really like complaining. So that's one of my principles. Like, I have that too. And I don't really love that part of myself. <laughs> I, I reframe it as belly aching. I think belly aching is just like, it's like great big, you know, it's like if you ever had that, that pet who just seemed to like, grumble to itself from time to time so that'll be me it starts to crack it starts to crack me up after a while like if I let myself go into complaining uh eventually you know I get disappointed that I'm using like regular swear words so I try to make up new swear words or recompose curses in in more creative ways and then that always fails because most of the good ones are taken let's be honest and so I, I find ways to start cracking myself up but I I don't judge myself about complaining I don't think complaining is a problem unless it, it bothers other people, which it, it definitely bothers my kids. So I don't. Yeah, complain. like people it's close to you bad. would probably would feel bothered by that. I imagine. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, people know me best. Know it, know it for what it is. It's just like a way of processing myself out of mm-hmm. uh, an, an attention on how bad I feel and more to well, what am I going to do about this? So that's that's part of it. I mean, when I run across problems, I think. I I don't try to judge my my reactions to the problems. I don't think that that's helpful. Um, you know, from a mindfulness standpoint, or from an acceptance based standpoint, your experience is what your experience is. You observe it occur in your head. You observe mm-hmm. it occur in your body. You observe it occur in your mind, uh, and then you go from there. But like trying to deny that you're upset about something is not useful. So um, that's one of your beliefs, then one of your principles you hold on to. Yeah, I don't try to lie to myself about what I'm experiencing, but I also don't try to imagine that just knowing what I'm experiencing is some kind of answer. That's just mm-hmm. an observation. So complaining, for example, is one way for me to turn anger or hurt into uh, frustration and then humor. <laughs> so eventually, to be effective, a lot of times I have to turn things into humor, which also can be irritating to people around me. Um, and then it's just, uh, okay, so what... Try when I try, what is the outcome I'd like? Why do I like that? Is that a good outcome to want here? Um, and what so do I, I think a question a lot of people don't always ask often enough is, do I even need to do something right now? Right? Does this need fixing? Is this a thing to fix or is it just a thing to experience? Mm-hmm. Um, and then whatever else I do try to be very careful. Um, whatever course of action I'm, I'm considering or leading towards, like, how does this, how does this affect other people around me? Whether I, whether I see them or not, you know? So uh, one example we got, I don't know how, I don't know how they found it, but we, we were asked to, to trim a tree that was overhanging the sidewalk. So I went and did that had massive amounts of branches. So I just kind of like stuck them back somewhere in our yard under another tree and somehow this a city inspector found them and said, you have like two days to get rid of all these branches. <laughs> that was, that prompted some complaining, uh, I'll admit. Um, it, so one easy thing would be just to dump the branches 
in a public space, right? Or in a neighbor's space. That's the cheapest solution possible. Right? That's not uh, a very purposeful solution. Not a very purposeful solution, right? It's a terrible solution. It would feel good in the short term, um, but it's not acceptable. It, it's not acceptable because of the way it impacts other people. Right. Because of the way it expresses principles for myself. So that's it's a miniature example and it ends up costing hundreds of dollars actually it, to get rid of branches in two days, but that was the right way to do it. You know, so just little examples like that from time to time. I think that's what you, you just strive, you just strive for doing things the best way you can. If it goes poorly, you strive to learn from that experience and do a little bit better mm -hmm. next time. So I've learned a lot from this experience of interviewing you and getting to hear a lot of, um, Things that you don't actually think you know a lot about, but it does sound like you know quite a bit. So I will take that as a humility, but the real truth is you do know quite a bit. You're workshopping with cool people. You're starting um, programs around it. You started a center, the world's first center for meaning and purpose. So probably that just sounds like no one, want, no one wanted a center for meaning and purpose. But. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you take stock of all the wonderful things that you have done to at the very least, create on-ramps for people to find their purpose. I appreciate you saying that because I do think, so if I was really going to say, like, take a step back and be honest about what my professional purposes have been over the years, the very first one was to sort of make, be a part of making meaning and purpose in life a, a worthy study of empirical study, right? A worthy area of empirical study. And I I could never have done that by myself. No one could have, but it happened. A lot of people got interested. A lot of people did fantastic work. And, you know, we've got tons and tons and tons of, of research out there now. And the second one was, I really, the biggest surprise to me when I first started studying this was that directly asking people, what makes your life meaningful? Or encourage them to think deeply about what makes their lives so meaningful. On average, at least among Americans, made them angry and freaked out more so than made them feel awesome. And I really thought, I really thought that if I went around asking people, are you looking for meaning? How do you search for meaning? What's your life all about? That they would find it refreshing and liberating. So I realized that's not true. So that my, my very first hypothesis as, as a researcher was disproven within the first month of collecting data. So my new hope, my new purpose, and is, is sort of like what you said, I just want to make it, I want to make it, mundane. I want there to be on-wraps for folks. I want to constantly be challenging myself to think about, you know, how can this be a, a normal thing to do? How can kids ask for me, ask around meaning? How can parents explain how meaning and purpose guide their decisions? You know, how can we all just sort of participate in creating something meaningful together and supporting each other when it gets, when it gets difficult? So I guess I'd say that's uh, that's part of it. And if, if I've been a part of that and I've been able to contribute and not get in the way too much, then I think that's awesome. So how would you sum, sum that up into a single sentence? What is your purpose? My purpose, well, my purpose is to help not hurt. That's the shortest version of it. And it comes out in lots of different ways. Huh. Help not hurt. Try to help. If I can't, at least don't hurt. <laughs> cool well thank you very much I'm very interested in all this and yeah I hope that 
Um, maybe like off recording, we can talk about some more topics in, in the future. Um, I'd love to meet any of your friends or colleagues or something that also have a new angle that they could add. Um, Cause I, yeah, I feel the same. Like I want to really help people find purpose and I've started a podcast for it and it's like my service to humanity right now. And yeah, it, it's something I want to keep alive and it, it's voices like you that keep it alive. So thank you for being a part of it. Well, I appreciate it. Well, maybe I'll just throw out one, one, uh, it's just sort of a plug, but not really since it's not my gig, but there's the international meaning conference in London, July 10th through 14th next year next summer so it's uh the folks who are running it are really cool i will be there uh, i'll be i think i'll do a keynote and a workshop or something like that there uh, but there's other fantastic folks also i think there's a, there's a there's an eye towards inclusion we want folks not to feel like you have to be an expert to talk about this topic because you certainly don't um, but there will be research talks there will be practice talks from therapists, grief counselors, oncology counselors, palliative care counselors. There'll be art performances. There'll be impromptu creative experiences. I think it'd be really cool, uh, that experience. So yeah, London, July 10th through 14th, I think, International Meaning Conference. It'd be really cool, for especially for folks who are, who've managed to make it through this whole conversation. Definitely that's the place for you. Yeah, great. I'll put that in the show notes then. And then I'll also see if I can make it there. I, I know I'll have the time off. Um, yeah, good time. Sure. Yeah, it would be wonderful to meet you and go to that. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thanks for talking to me, Michael. So what actionable step are you going to take next? Do you have a lingering question or something you want help working through? Do you need support in doing what it's going to take to live your purpose? People of Purpose is here for you. Subscribe to the podcast and soak in the stories and words of our wonderful guests. Do you have any friends that might enjoy this episode or the podcast? Bring them on board as a podcast subscriber. If you want to actually see the guests behind the voices, as well as the purposeful people and communities I'm a part of around the world, follow the podcasting journey on Instagram at People of Purpose Podcast. You can connect with our purpose-seeking community on Facebook at People of Purpose by liking and following our page. Know the minute each new episode is published, hear first about upcoming People of Purpose opportunities, and receive regular tidbits of inspiration and media I'm purposely perusing, pursuing, and pondering. It's simply a regular dose of goodness, intentionally filtered by me, to nourish your personal path of purpose. For the ultimate engagement, join our intentional group Purpose Seekers from the Facebook page. Join in longer form discussions, link up with accountability partners, and share in opportunities and challenges to better know and grow in your purpose. Send me a direct message on either Facebook or Instagram if you want to talk privately and receive personalized guidance on how to raise your sails and write your ship. Come forth with your biggest dreams and aspirations, and I will do my best to connect you with the necessary resources and mentors from my network to start your trek along your personal path of purpose. Cheers, and here's to becoming 